This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Callie Kachali. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Or uh, Kale Kachali. Regardless, Callie uh, Kachali or Kale Kachali uh, tweets Thanks, Richard. I love your show. Always wait for your podcasts every week, all the way from Nairobi, Kenya. So I uh, thought it was appropriate we send a little love out to, to Kaylee Kachali in Nairobi. Thanks for listening. And uh, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium and the Conspiracy Show. My name, of course, Richard Serrett. I'm coming to you from the Great White North. And our flagship station, it's a blowtorch, AM740 Zuma Radio in Toronto. And uh, we blast across the eastern half of the continent, 50,000 watts. Uh, this uh, station is what's known as a clear channel, which means at night, instead of powering our transmitter down, and I don't understand the intricacies of the, the license and the regulations, but we get to boost the transmitter power, which means tonight the sound of my voice can be heard throughout Ontario, parts of Quebec, from Maine to Minnesota, as far south as the Carolinas. But perhaps you're like Kelly Kachali and you're listening on the, uh, the podcast, or you're listening to the uh, Conspiracy Show on one of our fine affiliates. Welcome to you all as well. Perhaps uh, you're listening to the live stream at zoomeradio.ca or you've subscribed to the, uh, the podcast like Kelly Kachali or you've dipped into the audio archives by downloading an older program at talkzone.com. No matter, you found me, you found this program, and for that I'm truly grateful. Uh, regular listeners to this program are familiar with my media scientist friend Nelson Thal, archivist, the official archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan. And Nelson's a regular contributor. He's, um, he's actually, we began a new segment with Nelson here on The Conspiracy Show. It's called State Secrets. And one of the things that Nelson is very fond of saying, you might even call it his, his uh, catchphrase, is we are standing on the shoulders of giants, which is, of, uh, of course, sort of a paraphrase of a quote from Sir Isaac Newton, who said, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. In other words, Newton was simply stating that he was building on previous discoveries, primarily the ancient scholars of, of Rome and Greece. 
Standing on the Shoulders of Giants is also a name, uh, is the name of the fourth studio album by English rock band Oasis, which was released uh, on the 28th of February 2000. Well, tonight on The Conspiracy Show, you're going to hear a lot about Giants. We're not talking about the album by Oasis or Isaac Newton. I'm not talking about the football team from New York or the baseball team from San Francisco. I'm talking about the monsters of human appearance, but prodigious size and strength common in the mythology and legends of many different cultures. There are also accounts, of course, of giants in the Old Testament. Most famously, Goliath. Attributed to them are extraordinary strength and physical proportions. Now, you may know about giants from fairy tales, such as Jack and the Giant, or Jack the Giant Killer, which have really formed our modern perception of giants as stupid, stupid and violent monsters, sometimes said to eat humans, especially children, though this is actually a confusion with ogres, which are distinctly cannibalistic. But we're not talking about fairy tales tonight. My guest is here to shatter the mainstream academic teachings on the subject of giants and take us all on an exciting journey of discovery. For example, it may shock, surprise, perhaps even delight you to learn that thousands of years ago, sorry, uh, thousands of giant skeletons have been unearthed at mound builder sites across North America only to disappear from the historical record and that North America was once ruled by an advanced race of giants. You heard me correctly. But wait, it gets better. We're also about, about to learn how the Smithsonian has been actively suppressing the physical evidence for nearly 150 years. Richard J. Dewhurst is the author of The Ancient Giants Who Ruled America, The Missing Skeletons, and The Great Smithsonian Cover-Up. Richard is the Emmy Award-winning writer of the HBO feature documentary Dear America, Letters, from Home, Letters Home from Vietnam. He's a graduate of NYU with degrees in journalism, film, and television. He's written and edited for the History Channel, A&E, PBS, Fox, and ABC News. He lives in the Green Mountain State, beautiful Vermont. And if that's not enough, he's got a pretty fine first name. And if I do say so, Richard Dewhurst, welcome aboard The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Richard, and it's a real pleasure to be on your show. The, Love your introduction. The ancient giants who ruled America. Now, I understand you're kind of a tall glass of water yourself. Is that why you're interested in giants? Well, that's how it started. Yep, I'm six foot six, and, uh, you know, it uh, <clears throat> became a fascination of mine when I became uh, tall, and over the years as a journalist and a documentary filmmaker, I began a little Fortean file of uh, giant stories, and Whenever I ran across them, I would file it away, and generally they were anecdotal or at most uh, a capsulized reference to some find. And several years ago, I decided I was going to get to the bottom of the thing, so I subscribed to a couple of online newspaper archive services, and they covered hundreds of years of uh, newspaper reports, primarily in the United States. And with the help of word search, I all of a sudden began to uncover hundreds of giant stories. And by the time I got done researching state historical archives, um, I had giant stories in every state in the Union. Well-sourced, um, authentic, museum involvement, and often with the Smithsonian, either at the front end or at the back end, requiring the skeletons to be sent there only to disappear from history. 
Well, you mentioned newspaper accounts, and I recall uh, reading, uh, I believe it was, it might have been the New York Herald or might have even been the Times, uh, talking about these skeletons unearthed at what um, are referred to as these mound builder sites back in the uh, the 19th century sometimes. Uh, and and people dismiss those accounts. They say, well, that was back in the day when, you know, when yellow journalism reigned supreme across the land and, and the New York Herald and, and so forth. They were more like today's National Enquirer. So, I mean, the fact that they appeared in newspaper accounts um, – I mean, do we, do we necessarily take that at face value, or what's the next step well, from no. there? Um, and uh, as I said, I mean, I, I had literally hundreds of, of these articles, and I winnowed through them for specifically uh, articles that uh, had uh, references to major uh, museums, universities, professors, or multiple witnesses uh, in a town, and... Uh, once I began um, compiling them, uh, there was a certain internal consistency to the accounts that became very hard to ignore. Um, the burial uh, customs uh, would be the same. The kind of artifacts that are found uh, in association with the mound builders were very specific, and I tried to include them in the book so that you could see that these weren't just um, made-up stories of some giant somewhere. Uh, perhaps one of the most uh, surprising things in my research was a, a quote I ran across from uh, Abraham Lincoln in 1848. And he was making a speech up in your neck of the woods at Niagara Falls. And the exact quote is, The eyes of that species of extinct giant, whose bones fill the mounds of America, have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. And that's an amazing quote. That is it, that. I mean, that's uh, that's jaw dropping. I've never heard that attributed to Abraham Lincoln. That's remarkable. Yep, and um, it's remarkable. A because it's Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> it's remarkable. B because it indicates how widespread this knowledge in the 19th century was. Uh, we were an agrarian society. We were moving west. We were plowing the fields and. Everywhere, these bones were turning up, and it was common knowledge. When you start to read the articles that I've compiled in here, you see that there's a, a real familiarity on the part of the writers often, um, that, that this is not an uncommon occurrence. Another reason the quote is amazing is that um, a huge giant city was found uh, on the uh, Ontario border of the United States in Dunville, on the Grand River. Yes, not too far from my hometown. <clears throat> and um, not only did they find multiple giants, but they found houses with chimneys and a blacksmith shop with two tons of charcoal and evidence of gold and silver work. Well, before we get into you know how the Smithsonian or how Orthodox academia has suppressed this information, because, I mean, that's pretty amazing how, how you hide something this large. But, yeah. but let's, let's take a few moments and, and talk about what we mean by giants. Uh, when I think of giants, you know, we, and, and many of us, uh, you know, we learned in, in Sunday school uh, about uh, David versus Goliath or Moses sending his spies, Joshua, into Canaan and, and discovering, you know, giants and so mm -hmm. forth. What, 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 are we talking about the same kind of giants here? Yeah, we are. As far as I've been able to figure out, Goliath in the Bible was supposed to be 11 feet tall. We have n numerous uh, 
10 to 12 foot vines. Um, the cutoff I, I'm using primarily in the book is seven feet. And I would say that over half the vines are between seven and nine feet. And then there are 12 foot vines all the way from Minnesota to Louisiana out uh, west. Come again. Did you say 12 feet? Pardon me? I say, did you say 12 feet? 12 feet. My word. And uh, then there's one very uh, credible uh, find that was made on the Indiana-Ohio border of a giant 18 feet tall. It was witnessed by all the townspeople. Uh, It was uh, attested to by the mayor and the local physician and the uh, it was found in association with a nine-foot sword and an iron helmet that the writer characterized as, as resembling uh, an Assyrian-made uh, helmet from Nineveh. And uh, in that case, the bones were sent to New York and disappeared again. <laughs> but uh, you, I mean, you, you're a journalist. I mean, you, I am. you're an Emmy Award-winning writer. You've, you've worked for ABC News. You've written for the Miami Herald. Right. When, when this information is, I mean, this is the stuff that, that can get you laughed out of a newsroom pretty quickly. How did you deal with this information, and did you share it with your colleagues? Yes, and everyone thought I was nuts. <laughs> to put it in a nutshell, I, I started saying you wouldn't believe the, the um, kind of credible articles I'm reading here about giants. And, and, and they'd say, oh, it's ridiculous. You know, who says who? You know, prove it. I, I don't believe a word you're saying. You know, malarkey. You know. So finally, I, I decided. Well, in order to make the book credible and um, for people to have an opportunity to read what I'm reading, I, I'm going to compile these articles, and, and you can make up your mind for yourself. You know. And you've done a pretty fine job, uh, Richard. The ancient giants who ruled America, the missing skeletons, and the great Smithsonian cover-up. More of my conversation with Richard J. Dewhurst on the other side. Stay with us. When I was 12 uh, for Christmas, I received my first uh, copy of uh, the Guinness World Book of Records. And I was fascinated by the life and times of Robert Wadlow, who was also known as the Alton Giant or the Illinois Giant, uh, who is the tallest man uh, in medical history, up until, of course, we met Roger, uh, Richard Dewhurst. But uh, uh, Robert Wadlow was 8 feet 11 and a half inches. Now, the poor fella, he needed braces, uh, leg braces, in order to walk. He never used a wheelchair, but he had braces because he had very little feeling in his legs or his feet. He had autoimmune disease. He died when he was 22, always rather sickly. Uh, despite his tremendous height. But imagine thousands of Robert Wadlow's, healthy Robert Wadlow's, roaming the North American continent and ruling the land. This is the subject of Richard Dewhurst's book, The Ancient Giants Who Ruled America, The Missing Skeletons, and The Great Smithsonian Cover-Up. So let's get back to uh, what these giants um, uh, looked like again, uh, Richard. Now, these were... Well, first of all, they're, they're found primarily in these mound burial sites. Let's take a few moments and explain what mound burial sites are. Well, the um, Smithsonian itself estimates that in, in the United States there were several hundred thousand mounds, and, and it required the work of millions of people. And, and this mound culture was uh, pervasive all the way across North America. As a matter of fact, it's worldwide. Uh, we can get into that later. But... Um, 
it reached its apogee and fell somewhere around 1200 to 1400 A.D. And subsequent to that, uh, we have then the Indians that uh, we're so, so familiar with. But um, throughout all the research I did and all the interviews that were conducted with the Indians uh, when asked about the mounds and, and various other anomalous uh, ancient um, walls, dams, all kinds of things, the Indians always said, uh, we didn't do this. Uh, the giants did. And this was, you know, constantly dismissed as, you know, uh, aboriginal savages with, you know, um, childish viewpoints and all these, you know, dismissive Victorian uh, epithets that, that we've all heard. But in fact, uh, the mound builder culture was was highly sophisticated, and within all these mounds, generally, uh, you find a royal burial um, of a giant or multiple giants. And uh, they're often covered in copper, copper crowns, copper armor, copper and mica jewelry, copper bracelets, sophisticated grave goods. Um, <clears throat> this was not um, a savage culture at all. As a matter of fact, constantly in, in, in the reports, it refers to the higher degree of craftsmanship uh, associated with the uh, remains found in these mounds. Uh, did the the Native North Americans at that time, did they fear the giants? Did they war with them? Um, the only account that I really found of, well, uh, by and large, most of the observations about the mound builder culture, they, they always note that there are not defensive ramparts. They don't really appear. They appear to have been in a pastoral, agricultural uh, society. Um, many of the mounds were what, what was called effigy mounds, which are pictorial mounds. And um, in certain parts of the country, especially in the Midwest, and, and a huge amount of them, uh, surprisingly up in Wisconsin, um, the, the landscape was literally covered with these things. Uh, deer, birds, lizards, uh, mastodons, elephants, <laughs> people, crosses, uh, literally, the landscape was was um, cultivated in, in a uh, highly sacred manner. It seems. Now, on the other hand, there are stories of, of a, there's a story of a giant war that uh, involved the Lenni Lenape Indians and the Menengue, and uh, the uh, story uh, says that the Lenni Lenape were originally out west, and as a result of a volcanic uh, disaster, they were forced to move east, and when they came across the Mississippi River, they engaged with the Alagway Indians, which was another race of giants, and uh, engaged in an epic battle. And then another giant tribe called the Menengue um, got involved, and they uh, defeated the Alagway. They went south, and the Lenin Lenape eventually uh, settled in the New York-Delaware uh, area. And... Uh, Certain remnants of them were around up to the time of the settlers. So what happened to them? Where did they all go? If there were, I mean, do we well, have a handle on how many there were? And uh, there was a collapse of the mound builder culture, and the various Indian accounts uh, um, refer to natural disasters and also some sort of plague of some kind. And uh, I don't speculate in the book, but um, 
there was the Black Plague around that time, and we often think of the Mongols as only going in one direction. I'm beginning to think that they invaded both East and West and brought with them a disease that uh, brought an end to the civilization. How many, you mentioned a number of different races. I mean, do we have a handle on how many races? I mean, there are reports of giants worldwide. So I mean, how many races m- might there have been, and, and, and what kind of a population are we talking about? Well, that's, you know, it, it's, uh, there are giant burial sites uh, all the way from the Canadian border. I unfortunately didn't have access to Canadian newspapers. I'm sure I would have had a ton of articles about that. But there's, um, in Cuyahoga, New York, they found 200 uh, giant skeletons, and they range from 7 to 9 feet. Out on the West Coast, in Catalina Island, um, Professor Ralph Glidden, who was a curator of the Catalina Museum in the 1920s, he found 3,781 skeletons on Catalina alone, and over 5,000 on the Channel Islands. And those averaged seven feet, and the uh, tallest was a king that they exhumed that was nine foot two. Um, In Ohio and Minnesota, we have uh, burial grounds with eight-foot queens. Um, One, uh, she was buried face down. The king, who was nine four, was buried on top of her face up. And then in an associated series of eight other mounds, they found seven nine-footers and one ten-footer, and an 18-pound uh, stella of sandstone with hieroglyphs on it. All this, you know, is, is, is well-documented. When I, I mentioned Robert Wadlow, the, uh, the Alton giant. Uh, he had a pituitary um, right. uh, problem. You know, he had a tumor on his pituitary gland. That's gigantism of the disease. Now, these bones do not show any signs of, of disease at all. Right, because today, I mean, it's a statistical you know, anomaly, and usually, as you say, there's a, there's a pituitary issue there, and these uh, individuals that reach that height rarely live that long. Uh, they have heart uh, problems and, and so forth. I mean, well, one of the things that, that's extraordinary about the accounts, and I think, if you, you know, just uh, cursory going through the book, you'll notice that account after account, people are saying that the lower jaw was so big I could put it over my head. And... Um, that the bones seem to be thicker than those of uh, modern humans. Um, again, I don't speculate in the book, but it seems to me that we're probably talking about Cro-Magnon Man here. And are there accounts of, of superhuman strength to go along with these 12-foot or 9-foot frames? Well, there's Indian accounts uh, where they, they refer to their giant ancestors uh, having the ability to pluck trees out at their roots or pick up boulders and throw them. Uh, but they're mostly anecdotal. You, know. you would imagine, though, that, that uh, you know, a, a race of giants uh, would have been able to sort of have their way. Uh, I just would have assumed that they would have been you know, fierce and tremendous, uh, tremendous warriors, and yet I guess it was the plague that, that, uh, that, that finally was their undoing. Well, it seems that uh, they probably... Uh, were so prepossessing that no one wanted to really mess around with them. So <laughs> instead, we have a very pastoral picture of, of uh, huge earthworks all over the place with no defensive ramparts. On the other hand, a lot of the giants are found with um, copper armor, um, 
there's uh, several instances in Ohio and Indiana where they found groups of these giants, all uh, with copper helmets, copper nose pieces, copper epaulets, copper um, bronze pieces covering their chests, um, swords, and hardened copper implements. And right. again, it mystifies the people that have found these because the copper that they're talking about is hardened in such a way that uh, it has the strength of uh, tempered steel almost. Well, we, uh, we're we beginning to learn about this uh, huge copper operation that was going on along the, the shores of uh, Lake Superior uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe Lake Michigan. Correct. Uh, that may have been the, the, the main supply of copper for what fueled the Bronze Age. Uh, yeah. In Europe now, how, how they got that copper over to Europe, I'll, uh, <laughs> I can't imagine. But perhaps it, were, it, it was primarily these giants that were doing the mining. Well, the the, uh, the copper mines uh, in the Keweenaw Peninsula, and that's the northern peninsula in Michigan, and most especially Isle Royale, which I, I find has a very interesting name to it. <laughs> Isle Royale, Royal yes. Island. yes. It's literally an island of copper. And because of a geologic anomaly that upturned the copper and exposed it to the open air, the sulfur impurities burned off. So this copper is over 99% pure. And uh, they estimate that 1.5 billion tons of copper were taken out of there over a 10,000-year period. And they can't account for any of the um, outside of the burial finds in the Americas, which is only a small fraction. And uh, when you start putting all the other pieces together, it, you know, it becomes pretty clear that uh, this copper was probably a secret source of the copper that was being sent over uh, to Europe. Imagine so, the size of ships that would have been required. Uh, and this is, you know, what, maybe uh, a thousand years before Columbus? Uh, yeah, um, the there are um, related finds. I don't go into the book because I'm dealing with giants in this book. But up in that area, especially around Thunder Bay, Isle Royale, there's reports of megalithic dock remains. Um, in some of the articles I have in there, there's evidence of dams uh, that indicate that there was sea trade that that went. Uh, east uh, through the St. Lawrence Seaway, and then also down the Mississippi. There's a huge uh, earthworks on the northern Louisiana border called Poverty Point that's recently been part of the world heritage. Some estimates say there's 100,000 people there, and they've found these anomalous uh, cooking balls and these other things that they couldn't quite explain, and some People are now beginning to think that they were taking the copper from Michigan during the summer and bringing it down there and making it into copper trading hides and and then from there exporting it. Richard J. Dewhurst is the author of The Ancient Giants Who Ruled America, The Missing Skeletons and the Great Smithsonian Cover-Up, and we'll get into the uh, the actual cover-up aspect uh, in just a few moments. We have a break coming up, but I want to uh, ask you, some, I, I believe it was the editor of Ancient American Magazine, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, but uh, he was telling me, and uh, you can sort of, I guess, separate the wheat from the chaff here, uh, the idea that the, uh, you know, the, the, the traditional Native American or Native Canadian greeting where they would, uh, you know, an Indian would raise his, the palm of his hand outwards and would say, how, uh, 
that uh, the the idea was that the, the the purpose of that was is to count the fingers on somebody's hand because if they had six fingers, that meant that they belonged to this race of giants, and that the idea that these giants had. Uh, six fingers on each hand and six toes on uh, each. To- anything, anything in there resembling the truth? Um, in all the accounts that I compiled, I didn't run across one account of six fingers and six toes. Although I did run across multiple accounts of what's called double dentition. What does that mean? Which is two rows of teeth. Two rows of teeth. Mm-hmm. And multiple yeah, um, accounts of two rows of teeth. I, I don't discount maybe six fingers, but I, I, I didn't turn up any in my, my research. All right. Uh, let's uh, break away here for a moment. When we come back, let's sort out how the Smithsonian and other museums have been able to keep a lid on this for 150 years. Back with more of my conversation with Richard J. Dewhurst. Don't go away. Welcome back. I'm uh, joined by Richard J. Dewhurst, author of The Ancient Giants Who Ruled America, The Missing Skeletons, and The Great Smithsonian Cover-Up. And I'm just looking at some, some photos, and uh, some of these, I'm sure, have graced some of the, uh, you know, the grocery store tabloids, and it's difficult uh, to say you know, whether these have been photoshopped and, or which ones are legitimate. But I mean, how, do we, how do we, when looking at photographs, uh, sort of make that determination I, I, I mean have have you been have you satisfied that you know that there are uh, uh, fairly recent photos of uh, unearthed giant skeletons yeah, boy well you know with Photoshop era it becomes very problematic and I can tell you after World War two the reports of uh, giant finds virtually disappeared in my, my research except for a couple that came up and um, <clears throat> the uh, the conspiracy itself can be traced back to uh, uh, the first time they established the Bureau of Ethnology at the Smithsonian, uh, which was in 1879, and Major John Wesley Powell, who was a very famous Western explorer, was uh, put as the head of it uh, because he had had experience out West. And he established what was called the Powell Doctrine. And uh, the Powell Doctrine said that there was absolutely no proof of any contact pre-Columbus at all in the Americas, that what we were looking at uh, was not any uh, thing to do with high culture. These people were aborigines, savages. Anything that indicated writing was was just childish scribbles. And um, once that was put in place, then the universities fell into line. And the Smithsonian was based also on the concept of evolution, and that was the cornerstone of the institution. And as you know, if you've seen those pictures that we all saw in school, man is always getting bigger and smarter. (laughs) Right, right. So you can't have giants messing up their main scientific tenant. And then when Powell died in 1903, um, a man called Ailes Hadricka, whose name I have, a real problem pronouncing, but uh, he took over, and he was the man that came up with the Bering Land Bridge theory that all right. the Indians in the Americas came across from Asia by way of Alaska and through Canada. In the book 1491, they estimate that Ailes Hadricka himself um, took over 30,000 skeletons uh, into the Smithsonian archives, boxed them, did not examine them, and filed them away. 
Because basically, any proof of red-haired, blonde-haired giants uh, brings up the whole question of European contact. Right, right. And, and so again, you're going to blow an academic career out of the water. Well, if there's one thing I've learned doing this show and speaking with people like yourself, and that is that uh, uh, Columbus wasn't first, he was probably last. My research indicates that just about everybody was over here. Right. But um, the amount of fines in association with the mounds are, are, include um, stellas with the Ten Commandments, hieroglyphs, Roman coins, evidence of uh, China, India. <laughs> I be, you know, it just goes on and on and on. So you know, back to how they, they, they suppress this. So what happens when uh, uh, someone unearths one of these mass graves or a, a skeleton, uh, the skeletal remains of someone, let's say a 12-foot giant, and he takes it off to uh, the, the, you know, the local museum? I mean, how, how vast was this conspiracy? Was, it, was, was you know, every museum curator and director uh, put on notice that if anything like this comes in, bury it? Well, you know, very you'll get quotes from, from right after the discovery, you know, of very reputable you know, state museum directors and even the Smithsonian in, in several instances saying this is one of the most significant finds we've, we've ever encountered. We hope to study this more, and we're going to let you know more about it. And, uh, and then nothing. Yeah. Are um, there any remains on display anywhere? The closest thing I found was uh, out in Nevada, uh, the finds at the um, Lovelock Cave. And uh, those were discovered by uh, state workers that were dispatched there two archaeologists named Wheeler, husband and wife team, and they were excavating bat guano out of the cave, and uh, underneath that they found four giants, and those skulls were then kept within the um, state museum um, system in Nevada. But because of the NAGPRO laws, which we can get into, um, they are prohibited from exhibiting them. And uh, uh, this is common in many of the cases. The, the NAGPRO laws were passed in 1990. It's the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act. And essentially, it says that any time ancient bones are found in the vicinity of an Indian tribe, they belong to the Indian tribe, and they're handed over and reburied, and, and um, there's no display of them. It was a, um, a mound builder burial site uh, 90 miles south of Peoria. The, this man, Don Dixon, he discovered them on his farm. He was digging in 1928, I think, and started uncovering skeletons, contacted the University of Chicago, one of the most reputable universities, and they helped him uh, examine the site. They determined that there was three to 4,000 skeletons there. He only exposed 250 of them, left them uh, in situ, and then built an exhibit around it. And it was had 75,000 visitors a year. In 1990, when the NAGPRA laws were passed, the exhibit was closed down, and uh, 
then reopened without any bones and hardly anyone goes to visit. Sounds like the NAGPRA laws were a, a nice convenient cover for those that well, want to keep... Someone, you know, that's, that's been suggested. All right, I've got to take a time out. We'll come back and uh, yeah. continue our discussion, Richard. The ancient giants who ruled America right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. I just keep hearing Red Barber's immortal voice in my head. The giants win the pennant. The giants win the pennant. Boy, can you imagine a team of giants? They would have... Well, I, I suggest to people that the common knowledge is that there were giants in New York State attributed to to the name the New York Giants. You know, ah, and, that's fascinating. Yeah, and uh, as an adjunct to what I was saying about the Nagpur laws, the other problem that, that we have here is that the mound builders are not officially recognized by the federal government as an Indian uh, indigenous Indian tribe. Oh, isn't that interesting? Because nobody's ever stepped forward and said, "I'm a descendant of the mound builders," therefore give uh, them protection. I, I often joke that uh, either Conan O'Brien or, or Bill Walton should uh, step forward. That's right. <laughs> because they get Conan, you know. <laughs> well, they, they, they had red hair primarily, didn't yeah, they? Didn't they, they have red hair. They're like over 6'5". That qualifies, you know. Well, that, that, that uh, begs the question, you know, what would have happened? Where are the descendants? Why don't we have relatively, you know, healthy seven and a half, eight foot, well, we do have seven and a half footers, uh, you know, in the NBA and so forth, but where are the eight, nine foot tall, healthy uh, descendants of these giants? Well, um, again, as I said, you know, we, there, there's some of the accounts, you know, indicate that these are totally the same as us, except over seven feet tall, but there's a huge amount of these accounts, you know, where they talk about the large lower jaw, the, the um, extra thickness of the skulls, the uh, overdevelopment of the leg bones that, that seem to indicate to me that, that uh, as I said earlier, that they perhaps may be the last of the Cro-Magnons. Um, so, of course, but, the, the, the Bible refers to the, to, uh, the giants as the Nephilim, uh, sort of the descendants of the, uh, the commingling of the, mm-hmm. the fallen angels with the daughters of men. Right. What do you think of that? I have to have put some credence to it because of the physical evidence I've seen. Uh, I, I, in the book, I include a quote from Numbers where they uh, they talk about going into a strange foreign land where the sons of Anak um, were, and they come of giants. And it says, we stood before them as grasshoppers. And uh, I think it's very interesting, the, the sons of Anak is very similar to the Anunnaki of yes. the Sumerian legend. Interesting, yeah. Who were the gods. And then it's also very similar to the um, Anastasi, who were the ancient ones of the cli- referred to as the builders of, of the cliffs, the cliff dwellings out in Arizona. And uh, also in the copper culture, the ancient ones up there have a very similar designation. So this Anak, Anu, Ana seems to be Scythian, possibly tribe of the Dan, there's got to be so many of these uh, skeletons still undiscovered. And, you know, when someone uh, unearths one now, you know, with the proliferation of obviously, you know, uh, cell phones and uh, cameras and so forth, how can they continue to keep a lid on this? Well, I think uh, once people become aware of the fact that, that this is a reality and it's not some sort of fantasy, then... Um, one of the things I, I tried to include in the book is, is very precise physical descriptions of where these finds were located, you know. Uh, 
exactly, you know, where on the river, whose farm it was, and so on and so forth. And I think these days, you know, as you say, with uh, YouTube and videos and everything else, if people become aware they're living in one of these areas and open their eyes to the fact that these mounds are, or may still be around, um, I'm hoping that they're going to start discovering them. On the other hand, uh, the federal government, I had a friend who lived in a ranch out in California that had been identified as an Indian archaeological site, and he was visited twice a year by federal inspectors to make sure he wasn't doing any digging on his property. So, Oh, that's interesting. And he has a mound on his property? Yeah, he had mounds and matates and other things that, that were actually laying around on the uh, on the surface. And he uh, never dug anywhere because he was too intimidated. <laughs> but, um, I think if people are going to find these things, they're going to have to find them um, without the cooperation of the authorities. Do you know, have you been in contact with, I don't know, giant hunters, uh, people that are interested in actually excavating uh, these these sites? No, but I'm hoping as a result of the book that uh, that's one of the things that comes out of it. I asked you earlier about you know how you you, you uh, started on this 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 journey, and um, but how did it change your life? I mean, as as you had those aha moments, and I'm not exactly sure you know what what they were along the, on on the road, but once you had those aha moments, I mean, how did that change your life? Did it turn? I felt like I, I had just fallen down a rabbit hole, literally, um, like an Alice in Wonderland. Uh, I would get done with my day's research and and. Sometimes I, I would just sit there with my mouth hanging up. And, uh, there was a period of time for several weeks where I, I, I was, I would wake up the next morning and remember what I had discovered the day before and say, no, no, this, I can't. this is just, you know. But then it just kept mounting up and mounting up. And, and you know, it, it finally got to a point where, where I just, uh, I was flabbergasted. And, you know, and asking myself the same questions you're asking me. I mean, how is this possible? And, um, you know, there's finds in the 20th century that have been completely erased that, that you would think would have made it to our time, the Catalina finds being one of them, which is an incredible story. Another uh, giant skull was found down in Texas in 1930. It was called the biggest skull ever, ever discovered. Ale Cedrica from the Smithsonian was involved. It was found uh, by a WPA dig in association with the University of Texas. Mm. The pictures are in my book. Um, it was front-page news. Uh, the finds out in Cat- Catalina, which uh, was from 1918 to 1930, were conducted by Professor Ralph Glidden, who was the curator of the Catalina Museum. The island was owned by the Wrigley family at the time. He identified four burial sites on Catalina itself. The one he excavated, he took out 3,781 skeletons, averaging seven foot, tallest nine foot two. My word, 3,000 skeletons. He also found a megalithic temple. And um, this was front page, I I reproduced a Sunday supplement front page in, in, in the book, but it was international news. And this was in the 1920s, 1930, and completely disappeared. I lived out in California for 25 years, had a great interest in Indians, read all of the, everything I could about it, never heard a word about it. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful example, uh, uh, a testament to the power of 
what, whatever you want to call this, these these individuals, uh, these uh, elites, the uh, I guess the gatekeepers that control. You know, the, well, and the most the, amazing thing about the Catalina finds is that uh, two or three years ago, now the museum changed hands in the fifties and became the Catalina Island Museum, and they were researching uh, an exhibit on World War II, and one of the curators found several boxes in the storage thing with the name Glidden on it and took them out and lo and behold they found all of this you know documentation and so on and so forth <clears throat> the Los Angeles Times wrote an article about it but in the article and in, in the other articles they refer to Glidden as a crackpot amateur archaeologist when in fact he was the curator of the museum and he was also the director of the Hay Foundation which was part of the Smithsonian mm. And and then I, I show that the Smithsonian has in their own archives over 500 pictures of his discoveries. And the Fowler Museum in UCLA apparently has 200 skeletons. Unbelievable. I'm, I'm, uh, coincidentally, I'm, I'm heading down to Washington uh, next week. I'm just, you know, if I were to walk into the, into the Smithsonian and uh, <laughs> slip somebody a, a couple of Franklins or something, I don't know. I mean, do they still have these things, you know, in a warehouse somewhere or in the back back shelves, and maybe they want to, uh, you know, look at it themselves, but they keep it away from the public? Are they still... Well, I think there are individuals at the Smithsonian right now that are trying to pressure the institution uh, into acknowledging the wider spans of American history vis-a-vis... Um, Clovis and Salutrian um, uh, arrow points they found. We're getting dates now, 14,000 B.C. It's throwing all of this land bridge theory um, into complete disrepute because it was Canada was a complete glacier when we were talking that far back. And um, curiously enough, last week the Smithsonian announced that they had just completed digs on Santa Rosa Island, which is one of the Channel Islands that uh, Glidden had excavated, and they found 19 sites there, and they've identified uh, occupation up to 10,000 B.C. and the use of boats. Now, as you know, the land bridge theory says they were too stupid to have boats, but as I always say, I mean, how smart do you have to be? A log falls in a river, and you jump on top of it, and you got a boat, right? <laughs> there you go. Listen, I'm, uh, just final parting question here, and that is, you mentioned you know falling down the rabbit hole, but uh, and how do you, where do you go from here? You know, after you after this is you know uh, after you discover that there was this race of giants wandering around North America, you know, what do you do as a follow up, Richard? Well, um, I've been compiling quite a bit of information on Mexico, Central America, and South America, and, and, and it uh, appears to continue um, the same story there. I have amazing uh, newspaper accounts from these areas. Just recently in Ecuador, um, they announced that they discovered something called the Pyramid of the Giants there, and uh, I've seen some YouTube video of it. In Teotihuacan, which is the pyramid complex there, it's the legends say that they were built by the giants. And uh, there's a, a case that I'm investigating of a, uh, one of the first women Harvard uh, archaeologists. Uh, she started uh, doing digs behind in the mountains behind Teotihuacan and, and was coming up with extraordinary finds. And she was literally discredited and uh, run out of her profession. So. 
It sounds like this has has uh, forever changed the trajectory of your life, or am I overstating things? Uh, yeah, I, I I have to say um, that in the last couple of years, I've had to rethink it, practically everything I, I know about American history and mythology. Amazing story, amazing story. Uh, the ancient giants who ruled America, the missing skeletons, and the great Smithsonian cover-up. Richard, thank you uh, so much for spending some time with me tonight, and uh, uh, congratulations. Well, giant thanks, Richard. It was a pleasure talking to you. All right, Richard J. Du. Oh, uh, by the way, where can we get the book? Uh, it's available on Amazon. It's number one uh, right now on Amazon and Kindle for both archaeology and controversial knowledge. Also, Barnes & Noble and international bookselling sites all have it. All right. Thank you again. All righty. Richard, Take care. Richard J. Dewhurst. All right. Uh, my website, back up and online after several weeks, and I hope you can visit it, richardserrett.com. Hey, while you're there, subscribe to the newsletter, as yet unnamed, and as soon as I get sort of the critical mass a number of subscribers, I will start rolling out that weekly newsletter free to you. Also, say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, and of course... As always, follow the truth. Thank you for your ears, ladies and gentlemen. A, a writer with the Washington Post called 2013 the year that proved your paranoid friends were right. Vindication of a sort for those of you who listen to programs like this, those of you who don't run with the herd, those of you who recognize that the world is being pulled over our eyes. So I, I got to thinking, what will 2014 be? Keeping in mind, of course, it's early, but let's do one better than the Washington Post, shall we? Let's go out on a limb. 2014 may be the year we stopped calling conspiracists tinfoil hat-wearing weirdos. Seems every month, every week, every day, seems to provide further vindication for us tinfoil types. Vindication. Yes, vindication, but you know, at the same time, it's kind of hard to feel good about the fact that people are starting to wake up from a dream only to realize we're living in a nightmare. Or as uh, Roger, Zilzan, uh, Roger Zil Zilazny um a science fiction writer wrote, don't wake me up for the end of the world unless it has very good special effects. I think it was Zelazny who also wrote, the headwaters of Shite Creek are a cruel and treacherous expanse. Uh, but just when you thought the end of the world had been called off, hooray! Uh, along comes a lot of chatter online and in certain alternative news quarters about a relatively rare astronomical phenomenon known as the blood moon. And if you're not aware, a blood moon is a total, a total lunar eclipse, sometimes called the hunter's moon. And a lunar eclipse occurs when the Earth's shadow, or the umbra, falls on the moon. So if the Earth's shadow completely covers the moon, it's a total eclipse. But a partial lunar eclipse happens if the Earth's umbra only partially covers the moon. And because the Earth has an atmosphere that bends light around its edge... The Earth's umbra is not completely dark, so the totally eclipsed moon will reflect the color of the light contained in the Earth's shadow, which happens to be sort of the, uh, the longer wavelength light, red, orange, yellows. And this is why sunsets, sunrises, generally are red, and why most lunar eclipses are red. 
which is a, a rather laborious explanation of why we sometimes call a totally eclipsed moon a blood moon. But it's not just one blood moon that's causing all this chatter. We're star staring four blood moons in the face. Four blood moons heading our way, and more importantly, the fact that these four blood moons all fall on the Jewish feast days of Passover and Sukkot in 2014 and then in 2015. So for some, people like author Mark Blitz and Pastor John Hagee, these blood moons, these total lunar eclipses, are much more than just an astronomical event. They are a fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel, of the sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood, and suggests that they may presage the second coming of the Lord, the second coming. And of course, before the second coming, we, we have the, the rise of the Antichrist and the tribula tri tribulation, three and a half years of hell on earth. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. So I thought to myself, who can I bring onto the program to help make sense of the four blood moons? And I didn't actually have to look far because just last week, we were hoisting a few cups of cheer together as part of my 50th birthday. So he's a longtime friend and supporter of The Conspiracy Show, a pretty solid guy in my books. Ali Siadatan is an avid researcher of topics relating to the Bible. He teaches spiritual study courses for seekers focusing on world religions and specializing in Old and New Testament studies. His research into UFOs and alien abductions led to the making of the very popular documentary UFOs, Angels, and Gods which can be viewed at thinkagainproductions.com. Great pleasure to welcome Ali Siadatan to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, Ali, how are you? Hi, Richard. Very fine, thank you. Good to be here. All right, so I, in my very awkward and clumsy manner, tried to explain from an astronomical point of view what, these, what, what blood moons are. And obviously I brought you on to talk more about the, the prophetic angle here. Uh, but but again, just to make sure that I, I got it right and we're clear, we have these total eclipses, which are relatively rare, a total lunar eclipse. But we've got two happening this year on Passover and Sukkot, correct? Yes. And then again in 2015, one on Passover and Sukkot. Yes, and the 2015, the first day of the Jewish calendar, Rosh Hashanah, begins with an eclipse of the sun as well. So we've got an eclipse of the sun, and we have uh, two eclipses of the moon uh, falling on the feast days, as you mentioned, yes. So, uh, so why, why are we paying such attention to, to these? I'm, I'm assuming that we've had blood moons in the past, uh, you know, since recorded history. Right. Um, they're, I, they're not, you know, unheard of. They are somewhat rare. But, so why are we looking at these next... Four blood moons. Yeah, we've had lots of them. If you go on NASA's website, you can see about 5,000 years worth of them. You know, mathematically, they calculate backwards to see the exact date of these lunar and solar eclipses. Why is it important? Well, because uh, in the Bible, God establishes a calendar. And he then appoints specific days on this calendar, days that are important to him. Um, and, you know, uh, these are the feast days. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1, 
it talks about uh, the sun and the moon. And then it says this enigmatic sentence that follows the purpose of the sun and the moon. It says that, that they're there to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now, days and years is very obvious. It, it's the rotation of the earth around itself and around the sun, the biological clock that underlies all life processes is ignited. But let's focus on these two words, signs and seasons. When you think of the word sign, the Hebrew word for it uh, is ot, uh, O-W-T-H, usually that's how it's spelled in English, ot. And if you look up in a dictionary, it says signal or beacon. And that is really the proper translation, that the sun and the moon, both of them, um, uh, and the Jewish calendar is based on the sun and the moon as opposed to uh, the Roman calendar, which was solar, or the Muslim calendar, which is lunar. The Jewish calendar is both solar and lunar. The sun and the moon are uh, a signaling device. So when God wants to bring our attention to something that he, is important to him, he may sometimes use the sun and the moon as a signaling device, as a beacon. You know, the sun is, the moon is, is white, then it becomes red. It's white, becomes red. It catches everyone's attention. It's a signal. And then the word that's translated as seasons is moed. Again, if you look up in the dictionary, what does moed mean? It says it means appointment, fixed time, appointed time. In, later on, um, in, in the same... In the same book, uh, the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, when it talks about the various feast days the, in Leviticus chapter 23, it again uses the word moed. There it's translated as feasts, the same word that's translated as seasons. And seasons is kind of misleading because it makes you think about, you know, the changing of, of the weather. Like there's, it's winter, it's spring, but we're, we're not talking about seasons. We're talking about appointed days. So the sun and the moon have two purposes here. They are signals. And they're the uh, celestial clock that marks appointed days in which calendar? In the calendar that God then establishes through Moses, saying this is the calendar, this is how it's going to work. And there are seven appointed days. These are the, the feasts. Uh, you've got you know, Passover, a very famous feast. If you have any Jewish friends, they might be celebrating Passover. Unleavened bread, first fruits. Uh, Pentecost or Shavuot, the harvest, the Feast of Trumpets, Atonement, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacle. Um, and it's interesting to note that uh, so far important things in history have occurred on these feast days. When you go back in conjunction with the Blood Moon. Well, we're gonna, I'm gonna, yes, I'm going to talk about the events that have happened on the blood moons as well. But this is very interesting because the blood moons and the appointed days are about to coincide in 2014 and 2015. So you have to kind of understand what's the importance of these appointed days and how they have manifested in history. Then you have to understand what's the importance of these signals or blood moons and how they have been important in history. And then when you see them both coinciding, you can look back in history and see, well, when has this happened before? Has anything important happened on the stage of world history when these two things, the signals and the appointed days, coincide? And, and, I'll, and I'll build that up for your listeners. But you need some background information to really appreciate what's ahead of us. All right. 
Um, Let's get so, into that. So you've got the, the feast days, these appointed days on, on, you know, on God's calendar. Um, the Feast of Passover, well, it's, it's, we all know that the Last Supper was a Passover meal. Um, the, Christ and his the disciples are celebrating the Passover meal, and then uh, Jesus is arrested, trialed, and executed, and they really want him um, dead before the festivities begin, because Passover is a happy, happy occasion. And from then on, you know, the, the Bible teaches that, in fact, this ritual of the Passover where a lamb was sacrificed and the blood put on the door uh, and, and many other details about it that would be too long for us to get into, um, were marking in ritual format some event of great spiritual significance for the human race. In, they were marking in God's calendar uh, in ritual format. And that important event, of course, was uh, the sacrifice of the Son of God, which has spiritual significance for the human race. And so that's why that day was appointed in God's calendar. Now, he's then dead in the grave uh, and during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And again, if you've seen Unleavened Bread, you understand kind of the metaphor here. And then he's resurrected and rises from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. Paul, for instance, who's a Jewish rabbi, you know, really gets into this stuff in his letters and, and talking about how he's the first fruit, you know, risen from the dead. Um, so, so suddenly, these three feasts, Passover, Unleavened, these appointed times on God's calendar come to life and have spiritual significance. Um, the earth is going round and round, but God knows the beginning from the end. And there are seasons and purpose to everything under heaven, we're told. And suddenly... And this particular juncture in history, on these appointed days, this incredible event happens, which changes world history. And now you go to the next feast, the Feast of the Harvest, Shavuot, or as we say in Greek, Pentecost. Let me just to stop you there, uh, Ali. Uh, we'll, um, we'll pick up on this uh, the other uh, around the bend here as we continue to talk about the four blood moons. Yes, there is a purpose under the sun. I learned that from Roger McGuinn. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. So let me give you the shorthand here. Four blood moons means something is about to change. Ali Siadatan uh, is with us, documentary filmmaker, UFOs, Gods, and Angels, and you can view that at thinkagainproductions.com. We're talking about the, uh, the significance of four blood moons or four total lunar eclipses uh, coming down the pipe, and uh, they fall on significant uh, Jewish feast days this year and next year, and uh, the, this has happened in the past uh, where the um, – I don't want to get too far uh, ahead of ourselves here. You were, you were talking about the next important feast day. Yes, the next important feast day uh, that has, and has something important has happened to it in the past is the Feast of the Harvest or Pentecost, where 49 days plus one after the Feast of Passover – there was another one of these appointed times in God's calendar the Jews were supposed to keep, and that was the Feast of the Harvest, or Shavuot. And the New Testament says that it was on the day of that feast that the Holy Spirit descended in Jerusalem, and people were enlightened and understood you know, who Jesus was. And so in that sense, the harvest of the faithful began. And essentially Christianity really took off from there and spread to the whole world. Um, so something very important happened again. Uh, history and God's plans moved into a new stage. And so these appointed t- 
times, these feasts, these that were kept in ritual form in Israel's history, suddenly came to life. Uh, in Jesus' time, he was crucified on Passover, resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. The Holy Spirit descended on the Feast of Pentecost, and so they suddenly, you know, come to life. These are the appointed times, and there are other appointed times. There are seven of them in total. And we're expecting that something important will happen in, in the remainder of the feasts. When it comes to the blood moons, um, the signals. So we said that in the book of Genesis, uh, we are told that the purpose of the sun and the moon is to give signals uh, to, to humans uh, when God wants, to, you know, wants their attention. Um, so when has it happened in the past that these eclipses of the moon, where the moon becomes uh, red, as you explain, the shadow of the sun of the earth falls on the moon, have coincided with these very important appointed feasts in God's calendar. Where in the 20th century, it happened twice. Once, it happened in the 1967 window, uh, 1968 windows, where you know something very important happened in that time. Uh, there was a six-day war, uh, Jerusalem, um, you know, came under Jewish control, and, and many people saw a great prophetic importance to that. Um, and you know, everything, the entire Middle East's uh, uh, political landscape has been shaped by the Six Day War. Uh, uh, but the, the, another time where these blood moons coincided with feast days, these two feast days that you mentioned, Passover and Tabernacle. Uh, was in 1949, 1950, and, and so people see that, well, in 1948, the state of Israel uh, was born, and again, something important happened. Uh, when you go further back in history and you say, well, when did it happen before? Uh, it didn't happen um, in, in, in the 18th century or the 19th century uh, or the 17th or 16th century. The, the, the last time it happened, this exact configuration of blood moons, these signals, falling on these appointed days was in uh, 1492. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, uh, Christopher Columbus writes in his diary, in the same month, he writes, in which their majesties, he's talking about Ferdinand and Isabella, issued the edict that all Jews should be driven out of the kingdom and its territories. In the same month, they gave me the order to undertake with sufficient men my expedition of discovery to the Indies, he writes in his diaries. So that you know, was the expulsion of the Jews from the realm of, of Ferdinand and Isabella. Uh, and in that year as well, this, this, this happened. Um, when you go back to you know, 70 AD, the destruction of the Jewish temple, you suddenly find, again, the same configuration um, Let me the, just stop you there. So this, when we say the same configuration, we're talking about the appearance of a total lunar eclipse or a blood moon on Passover and Sukkot. And Sukkot. Yes. 70 the, AD, the destruction of the temple. Yes. Blood moons, 1493 and 1494, when the Jews were being expelled from Spain. Yes. Blood moons on Passover and Sukkot uh, a year after the, the, the nation of Israel was assembled. Yes. Uh, and blood moons on Passover and Sukkot in 1967. During, being linked to the Six-Day War. That's right. And what are the odds of that? I mean, what are the odds? Exactly. What are the odds of that? It, it, it is. It, it's incredible. It's. It's. Uh, you, you, here's another one that's very interesting. I find it interesting. Um, the Babylonians decide. 
that they, you know, they're going to destroy the temple uh, that Solomon has built in the 6th century, in the 500s. Uh, there's a whole story that leads up to it. They finally come, they destroy the temple, and it's on a day in the Jewish calendar, the ninth of the month of Av. Okay, history moves forward. The Persians conquer the Babylonians. The Jews are allowed to go back. They eventually rebuild the temple. And then, you know, the, the Persians are conquered by the Greeks. The Greeks fall to the Romans. The Romans are the masters of the world. They take over, uh, you know, Israel. And they get into a dispute with, 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 with the uh, Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish council, that, the, the religious council that r- rules Israel. And eventually in 70 AD, the Romans decide to destroy the second temple. Um, and it just so happens that that destruction also happens on the same day, the ninth of the month of Av. So centuries apart, empires apart. You know how many millions of events have to turn to coincide that the temple uh, that was, you know, built by the command of God was also destroyed on the same day twice? Uh, that, that's very interesting. So there are these days because God knows the end from the beginning. And he has appointed times and seasons under heaven for his purposes to be fulfilled. I was going to say, you know, I like the odds better in the lotto max. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we're getting the, the message loud and clear here is that, uh, you know, when there are blood moons coming our way, four of them, uh, and they coincide with these Jewish feast days, we are to stand up and take notice. Yes, exactly. Okay, so... So I get that, that we should be on the lookout for some sort of a change, but yeah. how do we get from, okay, blood moons on Passover and Sukkot to, uh, you know, the terrible day of the Lord has come? Well, in um, the Old Testament book of Joel, um, there's a prophecy about the second coming, and, and, and God says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And so it's an eclipse of the sun and an eclipse of the moon, this whole the sun darkness and the moon blood. Uh, we, we know if you recall, so in the story of the Gospels, when Jesus crucified, there's an eclipse of the sun. And, and so, well, it just so happens that uh, in 2014, there's going to be two eclipses of the moon coinciding with these two of the feasts. Uh, appointed times, uh, Passover and the Feast of Tabernacle, or Sukkot in Hebrew. And then there's going to be an eclipse of the sun on the very first day of the religious calendar of, of, that God establishes in the Bible. And then I'll be followed by two more eclipses of the moon in 2015 on the same feast days. And, and this is something that has happened 62 times since the time of Christ where uh, blood moons and um, um, uh, these feast days coincide. Um, and, you know, it's, it's in 2,000 years, that's not a lot. Uh, and uh, it's happened twice in, in the 20th century, 1948, 1967. And this is going to now be the first instance of it in the 21st century uh, of our calendar. But all these events uh, seem to be inextricably linked to the nation of Israel. So, I mean, yes. I guess all ties or all eyes should be turned towards uh, Israel. Coincidentally, you know, the Canadian prime minister there sort of making history, addressing the uh, the Knesset, the first Canadian prime minister to do so. 
so this is all very interesting. It is very interesting. It is tied to Israel because in the Bible's narrative, you know, uh, God doesn't tell the story of everything. This is what's going to happen in Australia, this is what's going to happen in China, this is what's going to happen in South Africa. He picks Israel as the uh, character that we're following through history. And it says when you see these things happen to this tribe, to this people, to this nation, then know that this is where I am in the unfolding of events according to my plan and design. Alicia Adetan is with us uh, talking about the four blood moons. Now, before uh, the, Lord, the day of the Lord, we, we, we have to go through the, you know, the tribulation. And we have to go through the heavenly signs. So even if we have these signposts of the four blood moons, uh, and let's, you know, let's assume that the second coming is nigh, we've got a ways to go. Well, you know, things can happen very quickly, especially in the Middle East. Uh, um, we should, as you said, take heed, take notice. There are signals, you know, they're on God's calendar. If you have to first understand that calendar, to, it's your daytimer. If you lose your daytimer, you don't know what's in it. But now you find your daytimer, you go, okay, these days have been marked by God. Oh, wow, there are those signals that he sends. And he's sending them on these days that, are, that he values. Therefore, I should pay attention. Now, look at what's happening in the Middle East right now. Iran has just signed a six-month truce uh, with uh, the West uh, to hash out some sort of a deal. It's for sure going to involve Syria. That's going to be part of the deal. Um, There's a balance of power where the Sunnis are trying to kick the Shias to the east of the Euphrates, kick them out, and and, take over Syria from Shia rule to Sunni rule. And change the configuration of the balance of power. And if that does happen, the Middle East, and I would say the Arab Spring, has finally bore a major fruit. There has been a major shift in the makeup of the Middle East, and perhaps that shift sets it for the next stage, which is kind of what you're talking about. Well, yeah, the, and the, the, the next stage would have to be the, the fall of Satan, right? Yeah, the next stage would have to be the rise of a leader that, you know, uh, signs a treaty with Israel, unites the Middle East against Jerusalem eventually, and is humbled by the second coming of Christ. Um, but, but, you know, but the, the powers of the Middle East right now are still fighting among themselves. They're not ready to unite behind this guy. There has to be some sort of a birth of a new order, a new regional order there. And, and perhaps these blood moons are marking you know, a cataclysmic shift in the geopolitics of the era, area that sets it up for this guy to take over. So we'll have to see. It's all speculation, but I like what you said. We should take heed because God is very loving and patient, and he's really going out of his way to send us signals, to give us prophecies, to, to explain it in 50 different ways, repeat it in his words, so that compassionately he's reaching out to his people, to the human race, and translated in all these languages and saying, hello, I have never left you in in ignorance, I've never left you in darkness, I'm speaking to you, please pay attention. And I think that's very important to notice. Uh, I mean, you know, the universe is shifting into alignment uh, in accordance with events of human history, they just, it's just mind-boggling how many things have to click together um, on, on the cosmic level, on the human level, for all of these things to match. That at this time in history, at this, what's happening in the Middle East with Israel's return, these blood moons, uh, these feast days, it's definitely, I think, something that we should 
pay attention to. Okay, so to recap, the four blood moons are uh, coming April the 15th, October the 8th of, of 2014, and then next year, April the 4th and September the 28th, uh, 2015. But Correct. again, the added significance here is that the total solar eclipses, uh, to- there will be a total solar eclipse on March the 20th of 2015, That's which right. is the biblical calendar of Nisan 1. That's right. The first day, Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the biblical calendar, will have an eclipse of the sun, and then the feast that follow, the Passover and Sukkot, will have eclipses of the moon. That's 2015, and then there'll be, um, you know, two eclipses of the moon in 2014. And you want, you want to know the last one, the eclipse of the moon, the the, the moon becomes you know red uh, on 2015. The very last one happens on the full moon, when the moon is closest in its orbit to the Earth. So it's going to appear huge. And, you know, you can't see these things from all over the planet. That particular one you will be able to see from the city of Jerusalem. So if you're standing on the Temple Mount or by the, by the wall, looking up into the sky in the, in the Feast of Sukkoth in 2015, you will see a gigantic full moon close in its orbit to the Earth, a supermoon, that will be completely red that you can see from Jerusalem. And remember, the Feast of Sukkot or Tabernacles, when the Jews all over Israel built little tents, and they go outside, and they sleep in those tents with the ceiling, the roof uncovered, looking into the sky. They're going to be fulfilling that appointed time in their tents, looking up into the sky, and lo and behold, they're going to see a gigantic red moon in 2015 on the Feast of Sukkot from their little booths. And, you know, I'm sure it's going to speak into the hearts of many of them because they're more familiar with, with this calendar and, and these the, the important days and things that have happened in their history and, and these signs and signals. You know, Christians are, are catching up because we shifted calendars, right? We, we follow the Gregorian calendar uh, where none of these appointed times appear on it. So, Do you think that was a – was that a conspiracy to, to confuse us, yes, to switch sure. to the Gregorian calendar? Uh, for sure. The conspiracy is always, in this case, going back to Satan himself. It's like, okay, you know what? God writes, makes a daytimer for us, puts his important days on it, and we see that things happen in, in Christ's life that were important, and the Holy Spirit coming. But then Satan says, like, you know what? Give me your calendar. I'll just you know, shove it in the corner, and we'll forget about it, and I'll give you a brand-new calendar. It has none of the stuff written on it, but hey, you know, you're happy, aren't you? You got a calendar. So I think, yes. That's right. My month is clear. My month has been cleared. I'm (laughs) I'm good to do lunch this month. So, Ali, where are you going to be April 15th and October the 8th of this year? Are you going to be outside looking at the blood moon and (laughs) contemplating? I am going to be outside contemplating and praying and opening my ears uh, to anything the Lord may have to say. And it's, it's... it's, you know, I, I find myself suddenly drawn into this conversation. It's something I passively followed. Uh, if anyone wants you know, detailed information, I recommend uh, some of the two authors you mentioned, uh, Haggy and, and Blitz. Um, um, uh, El Shaddai Ministries uh, is, is his ministry. He's really the, the guy who cracked it and has incredible research uh, uh, on it, and, and, and you, know, you can read more about it. And give a quick plug for you. You do some spiritual uh, studies yourself. Yes, How in can downtown be- Toronto, I have a center here where we teach healing arts, martial arts, and spiritual studies. Uh, you can find us on the Internet. It's W-U-X-I-N-G, Wuxing, martialarts.com. And you can watch my documentary at thinkagainproductions.com where we make a connection between the UFOs, angels, gods, 
and prophetic events, and it's also kind of um, food for thought. You're always a food for thought, Ali. I appreciate your time. Ali Seattle, thank you, my friend. You're most welcome, Rich. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, State Secrets with Nelson Thal on the other side. Don't you dare go away. All right, welcome back. Always a great pleasure to uh, welcome our media scientist friend Nelson Thal into the studio for a relatively new segment which we initiated a few weeks back, or I guess like about a month and a half ago, uh, State Secrets, where uh, Nelson... Uh, reports, I guess, uh, information, news from uh, behind, uh, backstage in the global theater from his uh, sources in the intelligence uh, community. And uh, thus was born a segment we're calling State Secrets. Hey, Nelson, welcome. It's great being here, Richard. Sorry, uh, there take we go. two. Here we go. Okay, great being here. Uh, yeah, in an age of gigantic pictorial illusionism and journalistic exaggeration of concealment, as McLuhan said, the truth in conversation has disappeared everywhere except here on State Secrets. All right. All right. I like that. So, I like that. Yeah, Put that on the bathroom on the, wall. Yeah, because the commercial media can't really expose this stuff. Now, um, these links – I put all the, the stories up at my Twitter site. Nelson S. Thal. You can get it. Go to my Twitter site now. People listening can uh, just go and um, all the links to these stories are there so they can read it in. Uh, all right. In we're just going to give them the short. We're going to give them the, the highlights. First ever. Ato- first item. First ever atomic bomb developed by the Nazis. It's coming out now more and more that uh, the rumors that started circulating that um, the Nazis developed and exploded what's called Hitler's bomb in 1944 on the Baltic island of Rügen, that's R-U-G-E-N, and in the spring of 45 in Thuringia. I don't know about the pronunciation. Atomic bombs were tested. More and more, there's evidence that this is coming out. And I have spoken to a former designer of the atomic reactor at Chalk River, and his wife has confirmed that they were made aware because they were they were working on the atomic bomb project with the Manhattan group. They talked about and said that they were made aware that the Nazis had exploded a bomb. So that's a great story. People can read more about that. Well, yeah, I mean, think the the, the significance there is that uh, I mean, had the I mean, what would have happened had the the Luftwaffe not been uh, destroyed years earlier, then they would have had a, the, the delivery capability and, uh, you know, we would all be uh, doing the... Uh, goose-stepping. The, the goose-step, yes. Now, uh, second item, the John Bonet story is a great story. It's alleged that Royal Canadian Air Force Colonel Russell Williams and his team murdered John Bonet Ramsey, and they can read this story at the link that I have on my Twitter site. The motive... Ramsey had control over the U.S. Navy Command Center based in the Pentagon, control over systems used for the continuity of government program, which includes systems to hand over control to U.S. shadow governments or to a foreign – trusted foreign government. Ramsey was not playing ball with the enemies of America who were planning the 9-11 attack, thus threatening their plans to disrupt the war games and aid the 9-11 attacks. By the way, Ramsey was president of a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin called Access Graphics and was involved in – Russell was involved in the taking control over the NORAD operations. It's a great story. And interesting thing, Richard, at the time we mentioned it, but 
We didn't have any of the details that this article's come out and this information. But remember who Ramsey's wife was that the police said, oh, she's innocent. She's got nothing to do with it. Her last name was Harriman. 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 As in Skull and Bones Harriman. So there you go. More. So again, uh, Williams' wife's last name was Harriman. Yes, Russell Williams. And of course, and of the course, Harrimans were uh, uh, the, uh, the ambassadors to the Soviet Union. They were the governor. He was the governor ruling of New York. The ruling above elite. the law. Okay, this is just uh, so. So again, the um, uh, John Benet Ramsey was uh, was killed because her father wouldn't play ball. Yeah. Wouldn't hand over the codes for the continuity of government. Right. Well, to get him to play ball with them, they showed the. They wanted him to know that these guys were serious. Wow. Great story. Follow up with the You're details. You're not going to hear that. Not going to hear that on, uh, on CNN CTV. or CTV. All right. Uh, next story. SEAL Team Six assassinated. Um, 22 members of the Navy, Navy SEAL Team 6 that died in Afghanistan shortly after Vice President Biden leaked that their unit was responsible for the death of Osama bin Laden. Radio talk show host Michael Savage has uh, no intention of letting anyone forget about it and um, he is uh, uh, talking a lot about how um, uh, insiders within the de- Defense Department – made the decision to take these guys out. Well, I, I remember reading an article uh, about this and, and Savage has, uh, been, has interviewed a number of the parents of these uh, um, uh, SEALs right. and the, the now deceased. And, the, and at the time, the, uh, these SEALs were telling their fathers uh, – and this happened in two or three occasions – something's up, dad. I'm feeling nervous. Something's going down here. I don't like it. I don't think I'm going to survive this. They knew something was in the air. Yep, knew. All right, next item. We've got to move along. These people listening, uh, these stories can, can go to my Twitter site, Nelson Estall, and they can click on the links and get the details. And Nelson Estall with state secrets here in the right. conspiracy show. Okay, next Hitler. Uh, okay, let me uh, let me just uh, stop you there. We have got the music coming in. We'll save that headline when we come back. Okay, and um, I heard Hitler. Yeah, <laughs> that's always that's Hitler what, survived the war. That's We're going to go. Absolutely. That's uh, that's a, a name that always makes one stand up and take notice 70 years later. All right. Back with more State Secrets and Nelson Thal here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Media scientist, archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, Nelson Thal is with us with uh, another edition of State Secrets. And uh, you were about to utter the, uh, the name uh, Hitler. Where are we going with that? Well, everyone's – Sorry. My mistake. Okay. Yeah, there we go. Everyone knows Adolf Hitler committed suicide by gunshot in his underground bunker on April 30th, 1945. Well, that's been the conventional wisdom. But um, now comes a senior staff reporter who you've had on the show before. Jerry Corsi. Jerry yeah. Corsi's new book, Hunting Hitler, New Scientific Evidence That Hitler Escaped Germany. Examining declassified FBI and U.S. military intelligence files, Corsi now says there's a compelling case to be made that you investigators suspected suspected that Hitler had escaped. And it does look now that he did escape. And of course, um, years ago, I did an interview and uh, did shows with um, uh, Greg Hallett on Hitler was a British agent, which tells, talked about him escaping. Brainwashed through- at Tavistock during the First World War because his sister lived in Liverpool at the time. Right. He showed up at her place. Right. And he was uh, you know, very disoriented, dazed and confused. 
And uh, yeah, fascinating story. And the Soviets used uh, at night sulfur uh, flares, which were yellow. So they painted the submarine that Hitler got out on yellow. And of course, that links in with the Beatles' yellow submarine. And you told me that it was Ian Fleming. Fleming. That spirited Hitler out of Germany. Absolutely. It was called Operation Winnie the Pooh. Wild story. People can read about that. And uh, Corsi, I'm sure you'll have on in a few weeks. Uh, Yeah, we're trying to get uh, Jerry Corsi on the program next week, in fact, uh, to talk about uh, his new book. Uh, And so the idea was that Hitler uh, escaped on a U-boat and ended up in Argentina, as many people have long suspected, and I guess lived to a ripe old age there. Yep. And uh, actually, Penn Jones told me that uh, Hitler attended a garden party at LBJ's ranch in 1964. My word. Penn so, Jones, Penn one of the Jones. top JFK assassination researchers. Yeah. Okay, next item, uh, Muslim Brotherhood. There's a TeaParty.org has a story about a Washington political insider. Retired U.S. Air Force Major General Tom McKierney has confirmed that the Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood has a major presence in the White House inner circle. In an interview with the Washington radio station, um, he says that uh, they've identified at least two Muslim Brotherhood players with direct Oval Office access. So there you have terrorists right in the White House. And, of course, Obama, as in all the documents that we've seen, Obama, when he went to school in Indonesia, listed himself as a Muslim. So um, I'm sure there's a big connection there. All right. What do we have uh, coming up next? Next, we have uh, 10 global businesses that worked with the Nazis, which is very interesting. Um, uh, guess what? Uh, number one was General Electric, who you, uh, who um, owns NBC. And there's the BMW. And there's Nestle's. And Novartis, the drug company. And Alliance. And uh, Coca-Cola. And Kodak. And Random House. And number nine, Ford. And number 10, the Chase Bank. So these are all global businesses, and you can read more about it at my website, at the Twitter site, uh, 10 global businesses that work with the Nazis. Well, of course, and, on IBM, uh, IBM And helped, IBM, uh, not in the list, but should be. Yes, yeah. IBM uh, helped devise the, the numbering system that ended up, uh, you know, being used to, to, uh, to tabulate and keep, ta- uh, to keep tabs on, on the Jews in Germany. And, of course, those were the numbers that ended up on, uh, in, being tattooed on, on their wrists. Yeah, yeah. Um, last item, oh, oh, second last item that is, we're going to have, is um, Clintons and Bushes attacked, invaded, and occupy Haiti. It's a great story that uh, you can read about the earthquake in Haiti being pre-planned and that uh, by the U.S. Southern Command and um, the entire way in which uh, the Bush-Clinton uh, junta used the disaster to then raise money, and the money and the cash was siphoned right into their pockets. And it's a great story uh, and uh, certainly links in with a lot of evidence that we've presented in the past about what was happening in Haiti with the, with the harp and, and, and the harp Well, attacks. how long has that been since that uh, major earthquake in, uh, in Haiti? It's been – January 11th. No, no, no. This is – I'm sorry. Um, it's been what, seven or eight years. I seven believe. or eight years. I don't and, have the and, exact date. And very little has changed there. I mean many of the roads are still uh, – you know, you, you, can't, uh, you can't drive down you know, major intersections in, in uh, Port-au-Prince and places like this. Uh, it's just con- – the devastation continues. Continues. Still people living out you know, in, in, in uh, temporary housing and so forth. So the idea – how was this earthquake then 
delivered? You, you mentioned well, harp. Be, it would be uh, yeah, harp, a harp, and you know, there's a lot of other. Uh, there's claims that. Uh, um, uh, in his book Oblivion, um, Colonel Bearden uh, mentions not only harp but other technologies that the Russians have and uh, other nations have that allows them to um, control and uh, generate earthquakes. Good book, uh, Oblivion, people should get by Colonel Bearden. Um, last item, Richard. Um, uh, people could see the Grinding Down America full movie. I've got the link on the site. People should see that before the link to, before that movie. It's up there right now. But yeah, tell us a little bit about that film. I've heard about it. I have not yet seen it. I don't it. know a lot about it. I've actually I haven't watched the whole movie. I've I, I had it recommended to me, but it's certainly about the ruling elites control of the, getting rid of the middle class and moving to a more uh, automated society and uh, moving a lot of the middle class out of America back to their homelands. All right, I was I was talking to uh, yeah. someone today uh, or the other day about uh, you know the state of the public education system, and we were sort of both in agreement that what we have uh, is essentially um, a triage. Public education has become triage, and, and he remarked, "Yeah, they're basically teaching students uh, to uh, to stack boxes uh, because that's the future. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, it'll be a nation of serfs uh, in North America." I- I- exactly. I mean. Uh You've seen what the automation is going to do. I mean, they've got robots now that uh, can, can operate like the human body. Oh, Nelson, we should also mention before we uh, we, we say goodbye yeah. the the smoking gun moment. Uh, yes, that that uh, you designed. Yes, is now up on the uh, the website at richardserrett.com. Yeah, and uh, it's right at the top of the uh, the page and on the home page. And uh, I really invite and encourage people to visit richardserrett.com. And, uh, and click on the smoking gun moment. For those not familiar with it, just walk us through what that is all about. Well, it, basically, it's a simple way to, for people to show others uh, how the Warren Commission uh, super bullet theory is totally fictitious and how the media presented it um, because – when you go through the smoking gun moment, you can see the Zapruder film and see that Kennedy went backwards with tremendous violence, showing a shotgun shot from the front. And yet you then have Dan Rather's audio plane in which he says the president went forward with tremendous violence. And you then ask the question, well, how did this obscure Dallas reporter, Dan Rather, an unknown uh, – he was the only one allowed to view the Zapruder film. He absolutely lies about it, bald-faced lies, says, uh, and uh, about Kennedy's – how Kennedy reacted to the shot, his body. And now he becomes CBS News <laughs> – Yeah, he becomes an, an icon. Right. Exactly. Becomes, that's his, his reward for lying about it. So again – it's, right. it's a great thing for people to show others uh, in a simplified way the smoking gun. It's a smoking gun. The smoking gun moment. So, yes. yeah, again, go on to richardserrett.com and uh, right on the homepage there, just uh, click on uh, the smoking gun moment and it walks you through. You see the uh, those those important frames like 312, 313, 314. Yeah. And over top, 
you hear Dan Rather's commentary yes. on what you're seeing, and the the, uh, the absolute complete contradiction uh, is very profound indeed. Well, I got one more for you in the closing moments here, yes. uh, talking about uh, stake secrets. And this comes from um, NASA, no less. They say they're talking about this Mars mystery rock. Have you heard about this? Uh, it appeared apparently from nowhere, uh, and they're saying it's like nothing we've ever seen before. And um, uh, the experts are saying that they were completely confused by both the origins and makeup of this object, which is currently being investigated by Opportunity's various measuring instruments. Of course, <laughs> Opportunity is this uh, the, the, the rover on the surface of Mars. Right. And uh, astronomers noticed this new rock had appeared without any explanation on, on an outcrop which had been empty just days before because the rover has been stuck photographing the same region of Mars for more than a month due to, uh, to bad weather with scientists at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California monitoring the image it, it, images it sends. Uh -huh. So it's the, 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 um, the rover is not moving around a lot. Uh -huh. So one day they, they're photographing this outcrop of rock. Right. There's nothing unusual or inter interesting there. And then the next day, all of a sudden, surprise, there's this new rock. This new rock. Wow. And, and uh, one, one uh, observer described it as resembling a jelly donut. Mm. And so NASA issued this Mars status report entitled Encountering a Surprise. And uh, lead Mars exploration rover scientist Steve Squires told a Jet Propulsion Laboratory event it seems the planet literally keeps throwing new things at us. He said the images from 12 Martian days apart were from no more than a couple of weeks ago. We saw this rock just sitting here. It looks white around the edge in the middle, and there's a low spot in the center that's dark red. It looks like a jelly donut, and it appeared just plain, appeared at that spot, and we've never even driven and, and haven't ever driven over that spot. Uh, so in other words, the, the observer didn't, uh, didn't you know, disrupt or... or um, you know, uh, drop anything there. And you can see a picture of it. If you go, uh, I, I've actually tweeted this uh, at, um, uh, at Richard Serrett, and you can see the images yourself. Squire said his team had two theories on how the rock got there. There's a smoking hole in the ground somewhere nearby, and it was caused by a meteor, or that it was somehow flicked out of the ground by a wheel as the rover went by. We'd driven a meter or two away from here, and I think the idea that somehow we mysteriously flicked it with a wheel is the best explanation, Squire said. Yet the story got even stranger when Opportunity investigated further. Squires explained, We are, as we speak, situated with the rover's instrument deployed taking measurements of this rock. We've taken pictures of both the donut and jelly parts and, and uh, got the first data on the composition of the jelly yesterday. It's like nothing we've ever seen before, he said. It's very high in sulfur. It's very high in magnesium. Uh -huh. It's got twice as much manganese as we've ever seen in anything on Mars. I don't know what any of this means. We're completely confused, and everyone on the team is arguing and fighting over what it means. <laughs> Remember we had Reynolds on, and he said— Morgan Reynolds, yes. Never a straight answer was what NASA stood for. There you go. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right, Nelson. See you Nelson in two Thal. weeks. See you in two weeks. State secrets. All right, my uh, thanks uh, to Tim Spreen for technical production. And um, as I said, uh, working on getting Jerry Corsi on the program next week to talk about his new book on how Hitler escaped and lived, a, uh, lived to a ripe old age in Argentina and perhaps, according to your sources, Nelson, um, attended a garden party yes. by LBJ back in 1964. 64. Unbelievable. All right, in the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed. 
and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light, what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.